at the beginning of this whole thing, if I could have looked and said, okay, well, you'll be here when you're 48, it was kind of exactly what I would have hoped for and wanted. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and here's the big picture. Few filmmakers capture the anxiety of aging and family life better than Noah Baumbach. In his movies like The Squid and the Whale, Kicking and Screaming, and Francis Ha, among others, Baumbach really gets to the heart of things that we have difficulty saying to each other. His new movie, The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, is no different. It stars Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller as half-brothers, and Dustin Hoffman as their passive-aggressively domineering artist father. The movie's streaming now on Netflix, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's really one of my favorite movies of the year. It's surprisingly funny and unusually deep about how we deal with our parents. So Noah and I talked about the making of The Meyerowitz Stories, his long career, and the art of a great movie star performance. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Noah Baumbach. Joined by one of my favorite filmmakers, Noah Baumbach. Noah, thank you for coming in today. Thanks. So, Noah, you have a new film, but I, when I was watching it, I thought of your first film, and there's a particular reason why. In the movie, Dustin Hoffman's character and Adam Sandler's character bond while watching the Mets. It reminded me a lot of Kicking and Screaming and Elliot Gould's character and Josh Hamilton's character bonding over the Knicks. I'm curious, because of that, what kind of brought you back to Fathers and Sons and where this movie really started? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that and and to actually take that further in my failure of imagination it was the Knicks in the first drafts of, of, <laughs> okay. of the Meyerowitz script I realized that because it begins with Adam's character's daughter going to college that actually this would have to be the fall you know the Knicks wouldn't have started till November so anyway so I, I made it the Mets <laughs> that's smart it's synchronized though did that occur to you that there's some you know 20 some odd years later there's some 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 recalling. Well, I think in 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 both cases, it becomes a way to communicate that's maybe less complicated. It's a way to you know, in this case, fathers and sons to to bond, you know, because you're bonding with this sort of thing that's outside you. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. As a as a sad Knicks and, and Mets fan, I I have a <laughs> specific connection to it. But right, well, actually, when I also when we were shooting it, you know, I, I anticipated that the Mets were going to have actually a better season than they did uh, in the movie. It's this is a you know a less good Mets season than probably the season they're going to have. But in, in fact, it actually turned out to be the prophetic, I guess. Yeah, you nailed it. In yeah. August 17, we were just as sad as, as Dustin's character. But specifically, like, where did this movie start? How did, how did, it, how did you land on doing a, another story about a family and, and, and fathers and sons and daughters? It's always a series of little things and big things. And it, even in this case, it was, it was sort of the idea of doing something with Ben and Adam together and, and that, that maybe they could play brothers. And, and so that in a way, I was even kind of thinking, well, what would the story be for those two guys? I also wanted to write about, I wanted to put in a movie, a, a, a certain kind of aspect of hospital life, you know, being in a hospital that I felt I hadn't really seen in a movie before. And this this intersection of the personal and the institutional and sort of incredibly vulnerable state you find yourself in and, you know, you're kind of like putting your heart in the hands of all these 
people that you don't know, you know, who, yeah. you know, and we all have a nurse Pam, right. Who we connect right. with and we're like, you have all the information, make me feel better. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, and you, you know, it's even can be arbitrary, like who makes you feel better and who doesn't. So I, I wanted, I wanted to find a place for that too. And, but I had no idea of, I mean, when I was started writing, I thought, well, maybe that's a bigger part of the movie. Maybe it's a, and it was the structure of the movie that, um, sort of breaking it into this this like almost a collection of short stories that kind of helped unlock I think a lot of the movie for me. Yeah, it's almost a Salinger-esque. I'm I'm a little loath to say that, but it's a Salinger-esque structure right where you have this story of a family but each part of the movie is almost a chapter or or part of the collection. Was that from the very beginning you knew you wanted to do some structure something in that specific way? No, I, I wrote a lot of scenes uh just between you know, different characters, adult siblings, you know, with their dads, with each other, with their kids. I, I just wrote a bunch of crap, really. <laughs> and, then, and then when I found this structure, I think it, it not only helped sort of tell, you know, form a narrative for the movie, but also it helped inform me, I think, even about the characters by, by splitting the brothers up into two different sections. It, it, it spoke to, you know, maybe the, the sort of compartmentalization of this family and, you know, how the father has one relationship with one, you know, son and another with the other and how, and having that sort of, sort of distinct differences helped me certainly write those sections, but even kind of like, you know, figure out the, uh, you know, what the movie was about. This is your tenth film, I believe, and ha- having wow, yeah. having gotten to that point, I'm I'm always interested in how much you're pulling from your life, your friends' lives. There's such so much specificity in every character, and in this like mountain of dialogue that you're really characterizing every person very clearly. Is a lot of this the imagination at this point, or do you still find yourself plucking from your life and others? It doesn't manifest itself that way, and or at least consciously for me, I, I'm plucking <laughs> plucking from from everywhere. And I like to use, particularly early on in, in the process, I like to use real names and sometimes real places. It, I think it just helps m- make it feel legit to me. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, it's like so, there's always that thing when you're like coming up with a name for a character and you pick this name and it just sounds so fake. You know, you, it sort of takes always like a few weeks before you kind of actually start to buy that this character has this name. Is This is a real name. <laughs> right. And it's not that I don't do that, but I, I do sometimes like to use, you know, names of, of friends of mine, you know, I mean, never, never in a, you know, a one-to-one way. I'm never, I wouldn't use someone's name of somebody, you know, and, and their personality. I would do it in a removed way, but it makes it feel personal immediately. And I think that helps me then invent stuff because I, I feel like I have a kind of base that feels credible. Yeah, when you create this New York artist world too, you look at like LJ's character, LJ, the character of LJ who's played by Judd Hirsch. Like, I found myself watching the movie being like, who specifically is this supposed to be? Which modern mm-hmm. artist are we aiming for? Is that a, a similar thing too, where you'll be like, I'm imagining a person that is like this, and then I'll build off of that? Sometimes, um, and and it also becomes like. You know, then for wardrobe, you know, you, you might draw upon a look of of somebody that you. There's an artist, Bryce Marden, that we kind of looked at for LJ's. That is specifically uh, who I was imagining. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't thinking of him at all for the character right. of LJ. So you he has know, the look, though. Uh, yeah, I just wanted him to have something sort of specific, and I always really liked how Bryce Marden looked. And and you know, again, it's not, it's no the character of LJ himself was was just sort of invented and you know we also meet him in some ways through Harold's eyes so it's like you have a certain expectation of him and then he actually turns out to be you know uh 
you know, a, a, a different sort of person. Yeah, he's like a good man. We're, yeah, we're expecting yeah. something different. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to put Ben and Adam together. Um, I, I'm interested to talk about both of them in this movie. With Adam, there's been a lot of conversation about how this is a return to Adam working with an auteur and he gives a certain kind of performance. You know, I've heard you say that Adam approached you and said, if you ever have anything, I'd like to work with you. Do you know what movie or what thing inspired that that to reach out in the first place? Uh, for him? Yeah. It's probably Squid and the Whale. Um, you know, and, and so often happens with actors, too, that they'll reach out and then, you know, you'll come back to them a couple of years later and then they'll pass on the project. Right? <laughs> of course. Say, <laughs> so, oh, I just didn't respond to the character. And you're thinking <laughs> like, why did you make me? I, I was saying that in some ways it's like Hollywood in a nutshell is makes you, you know, want something you didn't want before and then tells you you can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you figure out the best character to write for someone like Adam? He's so, he's such a specific person in the consciousness of the country. But this is this is both, I think, some of the best of his comedic talent, but there's also you know, the woundedness and the sadness that is going on. How, right. how do you figure out how to build some, something like that for an actor? Well, that was something I mean, something actually in our rehearsal process that I think helped free him up was talking about that that it was okay to be funny, you know, that that it was that 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 he could bring that part of himself to the character, that to not mistake the sort of responsibility he felt in sort of doing justice to this to this guy he he you know that not to mistake that for like dead seriousness right. that it, you know that the character was funny too and, and he's that, doing a know, lot of sandler yelling you know it's a, there's yeah, still yeah, still I, his essence and i thought that we should have that it's like you know you're not i think when you yeah you cast somebody you know you sometimes you want them to transform into the part but you also want to you know bring out what's special about them or things that that you like about them you've you know it it was interesting cuz also when i i wrote it danny very specifically for adam and matthew very specifically for ben and then when i uh, showed people the script for the first time afterward people assumed that they were playing the opposite parts but i'd never thought of it that way i mean it wasn't didn't even enter my mind so in some ways maybe i was you know willfully ignorant to you know, kind of public perception or iconography as I wrote it. I kind of wrote it more for the guys I knew. Yeah, and you've said that this is the closest character to the real Ben that you know. Um, is there a reason after Greenberg and while we're young you wanted to do something that felt closer to the person that you've come to know over the last 10 years? Uh, you know, Greenberg for Ben, it's a really deeply felt performance and he clearly found a lot of himself in that guy but it was a transformation the the character was very different from him and with while we're young in a way i was what i was thinking was i was sort of bringing my world and his sort of iconography together in a way like he was playing a kind of ben stillery character in my world and then in this one i i felt like well this is something maybe he could really play close to the bone you know because now i know him very well and and um, so I wrote it sort of with that in mind. Did he respond to or recognize that this was something closer to him? Did he ID that? Eventually. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think when he first read it, I mean, Ben jokes about it. First, he had to get over the fact that he doesn't show up 50 pages into the, <laughs> into the movie. Um, I, More star management. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think Ben would be fine with me saying this. I think he initially wasn't sure he wanted to do it even. I think I think he felt like, you know, I don't know that I recognize this guy, which is funny, you know, because I or 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 he felt, you know, that it wasn't, you know, 
a, a challenge to him. But I, once we got into it, he really gave himself over to it, and and you know I think it, it's a very vulnerable performance. I saw you and Dustin speaking together recently too, and he talked a little bit about how much he worked with you on the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can kind of explain some of that, what that means when you, know, you have an iconic actor, someone who's very invested in helping to build a character, but also, you know, what the level of collaboration is like, how invasive something like that might be too, because you're obviously someone who has created stories over and over again. And I don't know how often you have somebody coming close to you and saying like, how do we build this together? Well, I, I wanted it as much as he did because I, I've, wrote the character very specifically. I mean, they're all written specifically, but that guy had a, I, I felt a really particular cadence to how he spoke. And, um, and Dustin, uh, really zeroed in on that. And, and I think, you know, he, he, he plays it very much from you know the inside out, but he also recognized that in some ways, if he could get the musicality and the cadence of the guy, it would actually help give him, the character as well. So our meetings and and our rehearsals were far ranging. I mean, there was a lot of just talking and talking about family and our lives. And he had a lot of, he recognized a lot of things in the character that reminded him of his father. Yeah, I heard Um, him say that. There's there's something interesting there too about the the failed artist, you know, it's like a trope that you have returned to a couple of times too. the father who never quite got to where he wanted to go and, and, and how you then how the how the children then position their lives after that, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I think that was helpful for him. It made sense of a lot of things for him to think of of his own father. But then also, you know, we would read it, and we would just like I said, he he would always like me to say the line first as I imagined it, which many actors don't necessarily. Yeah, you hear the opposite um, usually, right? And. But it was almost like you know getting the note on a harmonica or something, you know, like you know, <laughs> like uh, or in a, you know, it was just like, um, he, I, and and it really was helpful to him. So you know, uh, and, and a lot of it is we we created a kind of shorthand so that when we were shooting, we could cut right to what let's get down to solving this, which is sort of what I try to do with every actor. But sometimes, you know, sometimes an actor just sort of you know maybe has you know, one or two blocks that they need to kind of get through or things that they need to kind of, you know, things that they need to unlock, whatever it is that's going to help them find the part. Sometimes they just sort of slip right into it. And then, you know, other times it was true of like Ben with Greenberg and uh, Dustin with, with this character, Harold is it, it, I do think it really benefits from a kind of long runway. So this movie made me realize that you're kind of sort of the maestro of American divorce now. You know, like that is the the notion of the fractured family is something you're very good at. What keeps drawing you back to stories about these kind of mixed families that are coming from different directions and new marriages and new starts? Obvious answer is I have divorce in my life, both in my childhood and in my adulthood. So, you know, I know it. But I guess I don't think of it I think I'm writing about family, you know, and, you know, obviously the specifics are going to be, you know, unique to, you know, whoever's watching the movie, but they might recognize their family or they may say, oh, boy, my family's nothing like this family. But I think, you know, essentially what I'm trying to document is true of everybody, you know, I mean, and, and, and with this movie, this sort of also this notion of family stories and stories we tell ourselves and you know stories our parents tell us you know either directly or indirectly and how we 
kind of imbibe those and take them out into our own individual lives. And then sort of, I think part of growing up is realizing, you know, maybe I actually don't believe this thing that I thought I believed. And, and uh, you know, and I think everybody can relate with that. Do you find yourself either taking your scripts or your movies to your family or do they come to you and say, hey, I noticed something in here or <laughs> what is what is happening with this? Everybody who is my family or my friends, you know, is at this point kind of used to, um, I, 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 you know, the fact that they might recognize a thing or two, in, you know, in movies. You know, I, I these things transform so much, though, so that like I might use something, you know, a name or a situation that's very sort of that's true or specific to something that's real. But then it really is so that I can kind of create and invent off of that. Um, I, I said to I had a friend actually um, come to a New York Film Festival screening we had a couple of weeks ago and. I realized uh, just um, before the day of, uh, Greta reminded me that I had actually taken a couple things from him and put it that way in the movie. <laughs> and so I called him and I was like, oh, I just want to, you know, it's not nothing. I don't think you're, you know, I you know, just want to let you know I that the, the, the couple things are in there. And he was, he said, he said, I, he's like, it wouldn't be one of your movies if I didn't recognize a couple of the things I've said or done. So yeah, um, you uh, almost have to keep a checklist of the small notes that you've taken so you can warn people ahead of time. <laughs> So I saw this movie in a packed movie theater for the first time, and it really played, and people were laughing, and it was it's – it's also a great New York movie, and I felt a lot of New York, a lot of walking the streets feeling. But the movie is obviously premiering on Netflix as well. This is the first time you're doing that. I'm interested to hear how that experience has been for you and kind of what your expectation is for something like this rolling out this way. It's important to clarify, you know, I made the movie independently, and, mm-hmm. I, um, and you know, with the same intention that you know I make all my movies, which is to be you know seen the way you saw it and seen in theaters. I think um, it uh, you know I shot it in super sixteen. you know a lot is made about you know made of the kind of spectacle movie or like you know movies like Dunkirk that are that how important it is to see them in the theater and and it's absolutely true. I mean, a movie I, I saw that. In the movie theater, and it was it was it was amazing. You were like the um, fifth consecutive filmmaker to come in here and be like, you know, Dunkirk really in the theater was amazing. It's just it's just interesting that well, well, that keeps coming up. I think, but I think what gets lost in the conversation too is just what you, you the experience you were just recounting is that it's equally important, I think, to see you know movies of more intimate scale in the theater. It's funny because Greta was asked to. This similar question uh, in a Q and A she gave for her movie um, at the New York Film Festival. Now a week after I had done mine, and she had this amazing answer, which where she quoted Walter Murch, who talked about the famous sound designer, yeah, and yeah, the editor, and, and yeah. wrote a great book about editing um, in the blink of an eye. And and I guess this was an addendum he had added to a later printing. But he was talking about the home viewing experience versus the theatrical experience. And what he was saying is when you go into a theater um, – and so I'm paraphrasing Greta, paraphrasing Walter Murch just Perfect. to be clear. Uh, when you go into a theater, you're, you're giving yourself over – to the experience. It's a vulnerable experience. And that's true whether you're in a packed house or you're alone. You're you're going in and you're going to be there for this thing. And and that vulnerability is lost at home because you now it's your slave. You you can t- turn it on, you can turn it off. You even if you don't, you know you can. 
I think it's absolutely true. And I think it's an important experience for my movies, this sort of balance between laughing and crying or discomfort or, you know, there, there's – I edit them – this one in particular, I, there's there's a kind of fractured, you know, almost sort of experiential aspect to them, you know, and even the way you cut on on dialogue yeah. throughout the movie is a very specific choice that, as I said, like in the theater, is it has, gives you a jolt, you know, it, it sh- and you feel it around you. Yes. I mean, I've seen it w- with with the crowd, so I also believe that experience, you know, it's it's unique and it even as all this stuff changes and it's not going to go away and mm-hmm. it's not going to go away for these movies and I feel very strongly about it. If three or five or ten times as many people see this movie though because of the way that it's being delivered to the world, does that balance that feeling out for you? No, it doesn't balance it because it's not – You know, I mean, if you said to a photographer, you know, we're going to skip the gallery and the museum and we're just going to put you on the internet and do you know how many more people will see your work? Um, you know, uh, I know that's – it may be an exaggeration, um, but um, of course you want people to see. I want as many people to see. I make these movies for an audience, you know, um, and all movies end up there anyway. You know, we're, you're toggling around, you know, you want your movies on this, these platforms because people will find them later in a way that when I was a kid you couldn't. I think that's great, but I think – People should be given the opportunity to see them the way they should be seen in the theater, you know, beforehand. Do you have a measure of success now with a movie going directly to a platform like this? Do you, do you, does it change the way you think about the end result of the movie? Uh, well, it didn't for me because I didn't make it for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was acquired in post. Um, my producer sold it to Netflix, and and I want to be clear they they love the movie and have been great and are really supportive of it. But I disagree with their model what um you mentioned greta and greta obviously has a film happening you guys worked closely together on a couple of films have you learned anything specifically from working closely with her and then going back and doing something on your own i'm interested to hear about what the the post greta working experience is like too yeah absolutely i mean i I, i'm not even sure i can quantify it it's 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 but i know it's there you know i mean i it's something actually i you know i made with Jake Paltrow, we made this documentary about Brian De Palma, and, one, and one thing Brian says, um, which is something he's said many times, you know, personally to us, but we made sure we we included it in the documentary, was that, um, you know, for him, he felt, you know, he wrote and directed a lot of his, you know, early movies, but he felt he needed to work as an interpretive director, you know, on things like Scarface and The Untouchables, that it that it helped free him up, you know, by getting outside of his own material, like that he he you know, he learned something. And so when he went back to writing his own material, he had sort of some things had changed. And I think I, I don't do that. I don't I mean I haven't done that, I should say. I, you know, directed somebody else's uh material. I I generate it all. I kind of consciously and unconsciously look to do things that that sort of take me e- even in stuff that I'm writing in a way take me outside of you know my own s- stuff you know and 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 I think working with Greta on those two movies did sort of both you know they, they're extremely personal movies and I feel very connected you know as connected to those movies as I do to any of my movies but working with her and having this sort of other 
you know, voice both in the script stage and also as a performer kind of changed, um, you know, changed how I make movies. I, I it was also with Francis. It, we also we kind of changed the model of shooting it and in, in, in a way too for, uh, on that one and and. You know, I think that it was almost like making a first film I never made, you know, when I was in my 40s, you know, and it, it, it you know, freed me up in some way and changed then how I would approach movies that, you know, when I went, you know, while we're young was the one after that, but movies that I was making maybe more in a more traditional fashion. Did you guys find yourself, she directed her first film, Lady Bird, um, and you're making this film. Did you guys still kind of collaborate in that way? Did you show each other each other's work and give totally, notes? Totally, yeah, like yeah. yeah. We're always, we're always very, whether we're, officially collaborating or not um it we're very uh showing each other things all the time and drafts and cuts how do you feel about your career these days i mentioned it's 10 films you have been been able to maintain your voice pretty consistently especially in the last 10 15 years are are there things that you haven't been able to do that you want to do as a filmmaker are there bigger projects or smaller projects that you want to pursue i mean there's lots of things that i want to do and and but you know, I feel lucky. I have very much the career I, you know, I would have, if you know, at the at the beginning of this whole thing, if I could have looked and said, okay, well, you'll be here when you're 48. I, that was kind of exactly what I would have hoped for and wanted. You know, movies and making movies and that kind of expression has always been something that, you know, I, I looked at as this sort of personal, sort of conversation with an audience in some way, and. You know, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. Jason Blum was here uh, last week talking with my boss and I, Bill, and they talked a lot about the making of Kicking and Screaming and how long it took to get that into the world and, you know, some of the personal connection to that story. And Bill, my boss, is quite obsessed with that movie. Uh-huh. And, you know, you could see him placing his life onto the lives of the characters. There's a whole other generation of people that work at this company that have a very similar relationship to Francis Ha, where they say, like, that is my movie. That is my life. I feel so connected to that. Do people approach you and say, like, you captured this part of my life on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, people do say that. I mean, it's it's always nice when people say that. I mean, it's what, you know, I I think back to movies that did that for me and how – how important they were in my life, you know, and still are, you know, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I saw Diner, you know, and, and I thought like, oh, I am those guys, even though I was younger and not living in the 50s in Baltimore. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking about that movie, it was sort of everything. I felt like, oh, I totally relate to all those guys and that kind of conversation, my friends and things. And then I also thought like, that's the kind of movie I'd like to make. So it's it sort of was inspiring and sort of all fronts. And, you know, there are so many movies like that. I mean, people like ask me like, oh, like, it seems so, what an odd thing for you to be Brian De Palma fan. Or I think that, why? It's not odd at all. I mean, there's an interview I heard with Tom Petty where he, they, some, they asked him what his influences were and he, he said, the radio. <laughs> and, uh, and I feel that way, you know, that my influences are movies. That's part of the reason why I asked you about sort of the direction of your career because after seeing De Palma, it, I was like, I wonder if I wonder if he'll make like a thriller at some <laughs> point. But is that? Do you still feel like the sort of the personal stories that you're telling and the familial stories that you're telling, relationship dramas, is is kind of your bread and butter and where you like to work? It's it's not. It's even something I'm in control of. It's like I these stories and characters and ideas come and I 
I don't want to make it sound magical either. It's just, but it's like I follow what is interesting to me and what I want to do and what feels like cinematic to me, what feels like a movie. And this is this is the expression. I mean, I, I get asked the question sort of within the movies, like, are you you know aware of like when you want things to be funny and when you want them to be serious and and you know it's not that I'm not aware of that in some ways, but I'm also don't care. I think that they these things live side by side within the movies and it's kind of something I'm in control of and not in control of. And and that's the same thing with the, the material. I mean I, I have ideas for things and I things I want to kind of express and put in a movie and and this is how it's come out so far, you know. Do you still go to a lot of movies? You talked about the theatrical experience. I wonder if you are still like an engaged viewer of them. I do. I do. And also in New York now I feel like we're in this like the midst of a of a kind of you know great and we call it a renaissance but it's like a you know there are all these great theaters that are yeah, opening mini up boom yeah the metrograph yeah. has been a very cool thing i love the metrograph and uh, my friend jake is a programs there and is is just you know so good at at, at it there's always something i want to see and and also they show so much on 35 millimeter and it's an incredibly emotional thing. Something I kind of rediscovered on Meyerowitz was shooting on film again, you know, that that because I sort of tried digital on the last the three between Greenberg and Meyerowitz. You Have know. you flipped back now? Or are you now no, not going to work in digital? Because uh, you had established something, I think, with Francis and, you know, Mistress America in particular, I felt like it looked like a new version of an old film. Yeah. I, I mean, I like what we did on those movies, particularly on Francis, and I'm glad I tried that. But so much of what I'm doing is a kind of conversation with my younger self who went to movies and loved movies and and – Sometimes that's even more thematic in the in the movie itself, but it's also even just like spiritually true. It, a big part of that was watching things on film and and things that were shot on film. And I have you know it's a kind of a, an emotional connection to that. So you've made this De Palma film. You know you made, now made a film with Hoffman. Are there other? Is there another hero or iconic person that you'd be interested in working with? Well, I would say Randy Newman, but I got to work with him on this movie too. That's also my guy. Uh, How did that happen? Um, he had reached out to me. I'd heard that he like if, if that that he had sort of you know liked my movies, and so I sort of was like planning it, but didn't have yet the movie yet. You know, I, I haven't had like even that many movies that have had like full scores, uh, you know, original scores written for them. So yeah, I I just sent him the script, and we had to, um, uh, breakfast and talked about how you know that we could kind of theorize what what we would what kind of score it would be he, you know we really wouldn't know till he saw them you know at least saw the rushes and started to like you know you know have a visual component and it was a you know it was a great experience we would um i would come out here and and go to uh you know his house and we'd go to his studio and you know i'd sit next to him and he'd play piano and uh, you know, while the movie ran, and all the uh, all the <laughs> yeah, all the music in the movie also is him playing live to the movie. I mean, it's it's. I mean, he we would work on it. He'd get it. He'd figure out what the theme was, and then, but then he would play it again and play it while the you know while the movie ran, and that's what you hear. I usually like to wrap with the question 
about the last great thing you've seen. And since you go to the movies, I'm curious what's what you've seen recently that's blown you away. Well, like yeah, I could t- t- some things I saw at the Metrograph. Well, I took my son to Popeye at the Metrograph, which I uh, oh, yeah. Uh, they just which, reissued that uh, that soundtrack. I know, yeah, with Nelson. the demos, which I had um, always liked. Also, really good. Um, it's one of the great bootlegs. Uh, yeah, it just it's it was odd actually. It, it came out like a week after we actually happened to go see it. I didn't realize it, that they were reissuing it. And yeah, I'd loved Popeye as a kid because I loved Robin Williams, and and uh, and then later, retrospectively, I would also be into Altman and Nilsson. But I, when I first saw it, it was the Robin Williams thing. Did your son respond to Popeye? I don't know that he quite loved <laughs> Get it. Get the tone. <laughs> <laughs> we saw we saw um, uh, Popeye and we saw Bugsy Malone also uh, in successive weeks because they they actually J- Jake did this as a. I asked him if we could actually just show Popeye and. Um, because uh, I wanted to show my son and, and um, really greasing the wheels there. You got yeah, the, and the so he, job. he created a, a kids musical uh, thing. So we we ended up seeing in three successive Sundays we saw Bugsy Malone, Popeye, and the Great Muppet Caper. Oh yeah, which does not hold up. Oh um, no, uh, <laughs> that's the Groden one though. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, well that part's all right. Are you trying to show um, him your youth? Is that part of what's happening? Well, I I see plenty of of the things he wants to see too but yeah it's a way to it's also yeah it's a sort of give give these movies their best chance too well that's a, a great place to end by recapturing uh noah thank you so much for doing this yeah thank you it was fun 